Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Louise Bagshaw is the author of 12 international bestsellers, including Tuesday's Child, Glamour, Glitz, and her most recent, Passion. She's also a parliamentary candidate for the Conservative Party in the UK and an advocate for many charities supporting victims of HIV, the homeless, and children. From a young age, she had a yearning to write, but started her career in the music industry until a publishing deal at the age of 22 meant she could take up writing full-time. Her first novel, Career Girls, was released in 1995 and was a top 10 bestseller in the UK. She has since sold over 2 million books worldwide. So thanks for joining us today, Louise. Oh, my pleasure, Valerie. Now, writing, as we all know, is a very time-consuming process and one that requires a lot of commitment, particularly when you write as many books as you do. How do you juggle your writing, your political work, your charity work and everything that you do? Well, the most difficult thing for me in the last few years for finding time to writing has been the fact that I've got three small children. Uh, the <laughs> oldest of them is five years old. So I've, I've had slightly an unusual process for, for writing. What's happened is I've spent 11 months of the year just changing nappies, basically, and running for office. And the final month of the year, my husband, Anthony, has taken our children to his mother's in New York. They get one month of guaranteed sun, which in Britain is uh, quite something. <laughs> and uh, during that month, I knock the book out. I mean, I get up at six and I go to bed at 11. I take breaks, cups of tea, and I go running, but pretty much I work all day, every day, and I knock out the book in a month. You write an entire book in the month. Yeah, but it is a month of total solitude. And even the political stuff, I may occasionally have a political appointment that I can't get rid of, but I try to cut it down for that month to absolutely the bare minimum. And what is that like? Are you a wreck by the end of the month? Um, a little bit. And the worst thing is, that, you know, then he comes home with the kids and he's he's exhausted. So he just wants to shove the kids at me and I'm exhausted. But it, it, it works out. It's got to be done. Um, so we do it. But however, we've just now put our youngest child into nursery school. So I'm going to go back to a regular writing pattern of ordinary days work, you know, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that's going to be very strange for me. I haven't done that since I was pregnant with my first kid. So, so, so it's going to be really weird. Pre-children, is that what you did? You just, you wrote Pre-children and pre, pre-children, pre-marriage, I, um, as a single girl writing my first few novels, I combined sort of being quite ambitious with quite lazy. And again, what I would still do, even in those circumstances, is I would pretty much not work for nine, you know, 99% of the year. And then in six weeks, I would write 3,000 words a day every day for six weeks, um, including weekends, equals um, that equals 120,000 words. Wow. I just used to literally do the maths, and it worked out to approximately six weeks, and that's what I used to do. It's like binge writing. Binge writing. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. That's exactly what it was like, yeah. <laughs> so you're obviously a keen writer even when you were very young, and but your career yeah. has been so varied. How did you stay focused on writing when you were working in the music industry and in politics? Well, I didn't, so I, you know, I, just, I, I never really thought that I could be a novelist, and I only turned to it because I was going to get sacked from my job 
in the classical record business, and sometimes, you know, being fired is the best thing that can happen to you. Because if, if it had all gone well for me in that job, I never would have attempted to write a novel. So I'm lucky that I thought, hey, I love these books. I could write one, and I had a go. Um, without that impetus of knowing that I was going to get sacked, I probably never would have tried it. So when you say that you love these books, are you talking about the genre of chicklet? I'm talking about, yeah, pop fiction, women's pop fiction. I mean, when I was at Oxford um, and even before then, I used to go and read big, glamorous airport blockbusters, I used to think of them as, with sort of gold and silver letters on the front cover. <laughs> Very much your retro 80s glam novel style, Destiny, Lace by Shirley Cromwell, Jeffrey Archer, Jackie Collins, mm. all those things, I loved them. Tell us why. Well, I think it was just the pure escapism. And also being quite a, a you know, a, the, the child of Thatcher on the one hand and Madonna on the other. Um, <laughs> I was all about the 80s and that whole sort of, uh, not exactly greed is good, but I certainly did believe in the thrusting pursuit of material ambition. So I loved all these stories about these glamorous chicks who were working in Manhattan. And, you know, on the one hand, they were running their own corporations. On the other hand, they were dating billionaires. And that seemed to me like a rocking great life. Uh, <laughs> uh, I remember thinking, oh, Yes, I was so ambitious. I just wanted to write stories about ferociously ambitious women. The sort of trippy Cinderella girl that sits there and gets rescued held no no attraction for me whatsoever. So it was much more Melanie Griffith in Working Girl as opposed to Julia Roberts in Pretty it, Woman. Indeed it was, exactly. Although Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman is, is quite feisty, but it was 100%, you know, Melanie Griffith in Working Girl, and I absolutely loved that movie. Mm. I was exact. That was a, that. That is my heroine, precisely. So take us back to when you first thought, "I'm going to give writing a go." How did you get started? What did you do? Did you actually? Have, this is going to be. I think know? for your for your listeners, a professional writer, this is going to be a very annoying, annoying story. But it's the truth, so okay. I may as well just just tell it. Um, I got a book called the Writer's Handbook, which is a standard UK reference book for you know agents and uh, magazines and places that you can submit your work out of W.H. Smith's major book chain. I bought that. I listed the 13 best agents in the country because I thought I would work my way through. If I got rejection from them, I would just work my way through the list. And if I came to the end of the list and nobody made me an offer, I would give up. I think that was the plan. So I got these 13 names and addresses, and then I looked at what it, how it said to submit your work, and it said you need a synopsis, a sample um, chapter, and a covering letter. I thought, okay. And they said, you know, make sure your, your covering letter is tailored to every agency. Do not send around Robin. So I thought, okay. Mm. Um, working in the record business, I already knew better than to send it to a publisher because, of course, publishers do not accept unrepresented work. You need an agent. Mm. Um, so I, I knew at least that I had to go to an agent. So I, I wrote, you know, I wrote 13 different letters to each agency and I had my synopsis and, and then my sample chapter. So I wrote a sample chapter and I sent it off. And the... Responses came back pretty quickly. Um, four of them said, no, thank you. The other nine, to greater or lesser degrees, declared an interest. Um, but all of them said, can we now see the rest of your manuscripts? And the trouble was, I didn't have a rest of the manuscript. <laughs> because I assumed that when it said a sample chapter, what they meant was a sample, you know, of what the book would be like if somebody was to give you some money for writing it. I mean, it, 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 honestly, I can truly say my naivety, it never occurred to me they would expect you to write the entire book on the off chance that somebody might publish it. And I am so lucky, because if I had realized that, I never would have attempted it. Wow. Um, uh, so so, you know, when I got this thing, I, I went in to see my agent and I lied and I said I'd written about a third of the book. And, and then I stayed up late at night in my office working on a third of the book. And I, I gave him about eight or nine chapters, I think. And on that partial submission, he sold two books. Oh, my goodness. 
So that is a true story of how it happened. But if, if I'd realised that you actually had to have your manuscript there, I mean, if anybody's interested, my first book was called Career Girls, and it's still in print today. Yeah. And if anybody has a look at it in their library, Chapter 7 of Career Girls, because I started with Chapter 7. I don't know why I didn't start with Chapter 1. Mm-hmm. I guess there's too much setting up. You know, this might be a tip for people who are making submissions. Chapter 1 is usually full of setup mm. information that you have to do. I, I thought I wanted to start in the middle. So I wrote Chapter 7 before I'd written anything else. And Chapter 7 of Career Girls is exactly what I submitted to all these agents. Wow. Word for word. For word. Not a single word was changed. It made it straight into the book as is. Wow. So, uh, you know, I can see why they would have thought, at least there's chapter seven, there's bound to be chapters one through six, mm, you mm. know, but there wasn't. <laughs> so, obviously, you're very, very prolific, but how about the revising and editing process? What happens after yeah, that first draft? Yeah, I mean, draft? well, the, it's, only the, it's only the actual words on paper first draft that I do without the children. Revising and editing, I can do, it's not usually, the deadline isn't there, the, the submission deadline. So, I can do it, of course, there is a rough deadline, but it's, it's quite fungible. So I have time, and I do that in a few hours a day, every day over a period of time. If I need to go away for a week or somewhere, I, I, I go, go into a hotel for a couple of days if I really need to. But I try to do that at home and fit it around the kids and fit it around Parliament, because it's not such an intense process, revising and editing for me, as, as, as you know, writing the first draft. And so tell us how you came into politics. I've just always been a bit of a political geek, I'm afraid. Um, I was as a kid. I was always fascinated by it, and I just worshipped Margaret Thatcher. And when I was growing up, politics wasn't... It's all quite centrist now everywhere in the world, but when I was growing up, there were two very distinct ideologies, you know, and I knew which side of the debate I fell on. Mm. Um, And I just always wanted to do it. But since my first book was so spicy and sexy, I didn't think they'd ever let me be a Tory candidate. But, (laughs) you know, amazingly enough, they did. So here we are. And you also get involved with a lot of charity work. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, not so much anymore because since I started running for Parliament and with the kids and no nanny, I find that my plate is completely full. Mm. But before I was adopted as a candidate, I was a school governor of our local primary school. I was working with War Child, which is a charity that... um, uh, puts playgrounds into sort of uh, Bosnian war-torn regions of Bosnia. Small charity. It just provides a bit of joy to the lives of kids. And um, also with a, a charity called the Terence Higgins Trust that works with people with HIV and AIDS, which I've been involved with since I was... Actually, since I graduated college. It was one of the first um, charities that really took on the AIDS problem in Britain before it was before it became, you know, fashionable to assist in AIDS. The mm. Terence Higgins Trust was there. And they're, they're really well-grounded in their work with AIDS. Now, you talk about the ferociously ambitious characters in your novels, these women who are in high-powered situations or doing all sorts of things. How do you research your characters and, and, and where do you get that information and feel from? I don't research the characters at all. And this is something I get in trouble with in every book. I mean, my copy editors aren't good at picking it up to you because, like, the colour of their eyes will apparently change three to four times through the, through the book and sometimes the colour of their hair as well. <gasps> I mean, continuity is not my strong point. Also, research is not my strong point because I actually can't be bothered. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a load of work. I mean, this is not what I got into writing to do. I got into writing to have escapist fun. Mm. So I don't research it either. And sometimes I really do get into trouble. Like, when I put one of my characters in a pair of white white leather Chloe trousers and the, the reviewer on Amazon said hey hold on a minute Stella McCartney is a vegetarian and she, she isn't designing a pair of leather anything trousers or not you know so um, you do get into a bit of trouble but I don't bother researching and the archetypes of the strong woman is just 
in, deeply embedded in my own psyche. Mm. It's it's easy to just put them into different situations. I mean, my current one, Passion, Melissa, the girl, she doesn't start out as very strong, but I put her in a high-octane situation where her back's against the wall and she finds her inner strength. And, you know, when she's tested in the furnace, she finds out what kind of a person she can be. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, So my girls either start out strong or they become strong through their own reaction to challenges. Um, which is like lots of us, I think. So if you like this genre, do you also like the kinds of television shows that we've seen recently, like Cashmere Mafia and Lipstick Jungle, which are very chick-lit TV, so They sound awesome, but to tell you the honest truth, I have no time at all to watch TV. <laughs> I watch things on DVD sometimes. I mean, in the late, last few shows I've watched are basically Two and a Half Men and um, oh. Rome. <laughs> that was an awesome show, Rome. Um, but that, this, and, oh, I, I like Entourage as well oh, but apart, apart it's a great show but apart from that i really don't watch much television so and it has to be something i can watch with a husband too because we only get a couple of hours a day so i really couldn't watch anything like desperate housewives because he just would refuse to watch it with me <laughs> i'm sure it's great and everything but i can't watch it so you publish pretty much a book a year yeah is that has that been your goal is that what you want to do no i could do two books a year but they won't let me write more than one because of cannibalizing sales <laughs> have you i could th- easily do more than one have you thought of venturing into completely different genres well no but i suppose passion is stretching the boundaries because it's a, it's a romantic thriller instead of just a straight-up romance and it's something that i hope can appeal to men as well as women mm. um and it was it's a sign of my publisher's open-mindedness that they allowed me to write it mm. you know because it's got a satin it's got action it's got shooting it's got you know jumping off buildings and running through and you know it really does have a very very large amount of thriller type content and that's a total departure from me and it was quite brave of headline who are paying me you know reasonably large amounts of money mm. to write books for them that, that they would let me try that so they're a good publisher they, they don't try and stamp on my creative uh, expression and is that something you want to continue to do, expand into yes, different types Yes, I would like to writing? write these more romantic thrillers because, I mean, I'm sure I'll go back to, to you know, just straight up sort of bedroom and boardroom stuff. But I have, this is my, Passion is my 13th novel. Mm. And you can get, you can, you can write yourself into a rut sometimes. It felt very fresh to me. I really did enjoy writing it. I'm, I'm prouder of it than anything else I've ever written. And I would really like to write something along the same lines. As your publishers will always tell you, we want the same but different. Did it, did you have to get into a different mindset to write about quite a different, uh, quite different things, or, or was it fairly easy for you? No, because I mean I do read lots of thrillers and stuff for fun, mm. so it was not that difficult. I mean, I, I think that um, the last book that I sat till three o'clock in the morning to finish was The Pelican Brief by John Grisham, mm. and I always thought that was just the most wonderful chase story. And I've really wanted to write a chase story, and now I've written one. So it it actually is it it makes the work process much easier, and it's it's simpler to do if you're into it yourself. Mm-hmm. So do your books overlap? Are you thinking of the next plot while you're finishing the current one, so to speak? I am if I don't like the book, and that hasn't happened with Passion. Oh. And, and for, the, for the first time in my career, I find I'm almost stuck for a sequel. But I, I'm going to think of something while I'm over here in Sydney. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to think of something. Are you going to set a book here, maybe? I, I very well might. I don't really try to set books when I've never been to the place, and it's a jolly good thing too because I would have got Sydney completely wrong. Having been to it now, I, I realise that my image of Sydney was utterly, utterly mistaken. Really? Um, yeah. So uh, I just had it completely wrong all around. So uh, now I've been here, I might be able to set something partially here and also in New Zealand. That would be fun to do. I, I definitely see part of a, ch- a global chase um, or hunt happening here.
Fantastic. So it would be a great it would be a great it would be a great setting for that. So obviously with this kind of genre, the women are glamorous and the you know, um they 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 have fantastic lifestyles, they do really interesting things. How does that compare to your lifestyle? What, my lifestyle with nappies and the wiggles? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's escapism. That's what I said. You know, I'm a politician. I talk all day about long about Gordon Brown and quantitative easing and unemployment rates in Northamptonshire. Then I go home, you know, put the microwave chicken on, change a few nappies, you know, whack on the night guard and correct the homework. My life is not glamorous at all. Um, and so these these girls represent as much of an escape for me as they do for anybody else. So what would your advice be for aspiring authors who are thinking, I would just love to be able to do that? Um, get, the, get the work right first and then, then get the submissions right. I don't actually, to this day, the writer's handbook is the book that you want to buy. And you can get it off Amazon UK and have it shipped to Australia. It's, it's expensive, but it will be an investment in your career. You need it. Um, it's not just um, full of a listing of all agents and stuff like that. It does have very good articles by professional writers on how to do submissions to magazines and so forth. Um, avoid the common mistakes. Please don't think that you can sell a collection of short stories. You can't. Don't think you can sell a novella. You can't. Make sure that your book can be summed up in a single sentence. So if I'm pitching passion to you, I'm going to say to you, it's James Bond for girls. You know, mm. if I'm pitching... Confessions of a Shopaholic, which is by my friend Maddie Wickham, who writes under the pseudonym Sophie Kinsella. I would say this is Bridget Jones with a shopping addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure you can tell your best girlfriend what this is about, or, or male friends, in one sentence, because that's what's going to be talked about at an acquisitions meeting. And then, you know, make sure you only submit to agents, not to publishers, mm-hmm. and make sure that your letter to the agents is individualistic, based on their agency. Oh, and don't make it really don't make it really embarrassing and say things like, "This is going to be the biggest bestseller ever." It's John Grisham meets Jackie Collins. It's a, you know just keep it short and businesslike. Wonderful. And you're obviously a veteran now, so you've got it down pat. But when you were starting out, did you place much emphasis in you know workshopping or working with other writers at all? No, but I tell you what, though, I nearly lost my commission after I got this great deal because I was working, you know, I, I drifted more towards the literary and it was nothing like they've been led to expect from my submission and they very nearly cancelled my contract so my career could have been strangled at birth. Wow. And my, edit, my editor saved me by giving me this one piece of advice that is the best, best advice. It may sound mundane, but I promise you it works. She said, Louise, just go away, read five or six of the books that you say you love, then come back and write your book. It was the best piece of advice anyone's ever given me. And because, of course, as I, as I, I had kind of written myself into a corner. And as I started to read these books, as I picked up my copy of Cain and Abel by Geoffrey Archer, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember how to do this. And I did it. So if you're writing a, a police procedural, you know, go and read your Kathy Rikes and, you know, go and read your Kay Scarpetta and go and read whatever else. Make sure that they're books by different authors, because if you just read one author, you will plagiarize their style. Mm. Um, they should be in your genre. They should all be bestsellers. Do not read anything that wasn't a top ten bestseller, and um, read four or five of them, and you'll suddenly—it it really is monkey see, monkey do. Mm-mm. And and finally, take paint us a picture in say five years. Where do you want to be with your writing and your politics and your life in general? Where do I want to be with my uh, with my politics? I'd like to be a minister in a Cameron-led Conservative government that is slowly putting our country back together. And after five years, I think we'll only just have begun to make a dent mm-hmm. uh, because we're in such a bad shape now. I don't expect we can change it immediately. 
Um, and in terms of my writing career, I just like to be—I'd like to be still writing books, putting out one a year, but you know, selling lots more of them and making more money. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much my vision all the time. This is my five-year plan, my ten-year plan, and my twenty-year plan. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Louise. Thanks so much, Ray. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.